This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. It's a Remembrance Day edition of uh, Real Talk today. Ryan Jesperson with you, John Hicks. And we thank you for joining us. Looking forward to today's show. In just a moment, we're going to speak with a, a researcher, an occupational therapist, a professor uh, in the Faculty of Rehabilitation Medicine at the University of Alberta. Perhaps more notably today, uh, she's the director of the Heroes in Mind Advocacy and Research Consortium. Uh, Dr. Suzette Bramo phillips is going to be joining us. And then our Real Talk Roundtable today, presented by Urban Timber, a very special edition that will celebrate... You might you might wonder what a what a strange choice of words to invoke on Remembrance Day a celebration. I don't think it's that bad of connection. Mm-hmm. This is uh, a follow up to last year's Real Talk Roundtable where we had really no idea what was about to happen. Don Levers is an mm-hmm. author. Uh, Don's written several books. He's a, a World War II historian. He's a passionate uh, Canadian when it comes to recognizing and telling the stories of Canadian history, uh, the servicemen and women that have, uh, in, in many circumstances, paid uh, the ultimate sacrifice uh, to, to vend their country's freedom and to serve abroad. Don's book, Our Father's Footsteps, when it was first released, was an Amazon bestseller. People really connected with it. It's, yeah. it's the story, the personal stories of some of the, the Canadian personnel that were on those beaches that landed on D-Day, on June 6, 1944. Mm-hmm. So as Don is, and I'll tell the story in more fulsome fashion in about a half an hour when he joins us alongside two other guests, but Marie happened, Brown and Mark Douglas. It happened live here on the show. It happened live on the show. We're showing the cover of Don's book, and a real talker uh, is watching this, a real talker by the name of Shirley, and she writes in, I think it was in the, I'm getting chills as I'm saying this right now. She wrote it, I think it was on the live chat. She says, I think that's my dad yeah. in that photo. <laughs> And I say this to Don Don as we're talking, and Don's like kind of like blown back on his heels a little bit. And he says, well, we'll put us in touch, which we do. They connect. Long story short, we're going to be speaking. uh, Pardon me. I think it was it was Shirley's. uh, She thought it was her grandfather that was in the photo. So it turns out that that Shirley's dad, Mark, is going to join us. They've connected. Don connected with the Douglas family. And then Don's also made a connection uh, with, I mean, Marie, who I mentioned earlier, Marie Brown is going to join us from England this morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is uh, has her own remarkable story. Her dad served on the British side. He was serving on the beaches for months, as a matter of fact, uh, when he returned home uh, unloading ships as they arrived off Sword Beach. Of course, there's, there's Normandy, there's Juno, there's Sword, there's all these different beaches. Um, I'm very much looking forward to this roundtable conversation as we better understand some of the stories, some of them from 80 years ago, some of them, as, as we're going to speak about with, with the good doctor in just a moment, th- these are present day. We're going to be talking about men and women that are currently serving um, and something called moral injury which I think is going to be a very important element of what we talk about on today's edition or today's episode of Real Talk. I like John, that you're kicking it off with someone who's talking about just dealing with mm-hmm. this stuff. People often think, you know, it happened so long ago, but it affects you. It well, still affects people today. My grandfather just passed away, so this is a first remembrance day without him. So it's 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 hard. Tell us about your grandpa. Uh, his name was Bob Bickle. Uh, here's a little photo. A lot of people think I look a lot like him. 
I, I didn't see it till my grandmother sent me this. Oh, yesterday. wow. So he would have been 90 years old yesterday. Uh, he worked on the water trucks, actually, in the Korean War. So bringing water to all the men and people fighting in the Boy, did you ever Korea. look like your grandpa. <laughs> That's what I, I didn't hey. notice till she sent me this this morning. And I was like, uh-oh. For people that are listening on the podcast, <laughs> you just showed us a side-by-side of, of him. Yeah. Um, I guess that would have been during the Korean War. Yeah. Uh, and then him probably just a few years ago. Mm-hmm. It and also kind of gives you a bit of a peek of what you're going to look like when you're 85, <laughs> doesn't it? I was like, he's got a full head of hair. And then, <laughs> uh, you know, I grew up in like a small town called Bowmanville, Ontario. They threw up these banners this year. So here's my mother, my grandmother, who's still alive, uh, and uh, my mom's two sisters there. And they've thrown up these banners to commemorate and celebrate veterans who were mm. born or grew up in our city. So that's Lest pretty cool. Lest we forget. Amazing. And then I know... Your grandfather as well, right? Yeah, we so. were we were talking about this just today, and I think that that everybody that's going to be uh, listening to or watching this episode today is going to be thinking of somebody in their life today. When I think of Remembrance Day, mm-hmm. uh, I think of my grandfather. He's since passed, but a photo uh, right here. Stanley Wilfred Jesperson, who grew up on a farm, a dairy farm, uh, just west of Edmonton in Stony Plain, but he headed down to Calgary, uh, desperately wanted to be an Air Force pilot. Yeah, uh, but was colorblind, and oh, really? so yeah. So he couldn't fly, but he was uh, an aircraft mechanic, and he uh, very proudly served his country, and he would get all geared up every Remembrance Day, and he would play. He was a, uh, just a, a fabulous trumpet player. Oh, amazing. Uh, and I can hear it now. Um, you know, every yeah. Remembrance Day, he would play the last post, mm-hmm. and uh, many Canadians will be, will be pausing at, at 11 o'clock uh, Eastern time, and then at 11 o'clock in your own time zone, of course, for that moment of silence, mm-hmm. and, and uh, many of us will be listening to the last post. That, to me, is pretty powerful stuff. Yeah, and if you've got family that are still alive, like, that served, Yeah, man, call them. Call them every week, because you don't know until... I didn't know till this year, you know, how much... And I did. I, I thought I, I called them once a month, twice a month. It's never enough. Mm. It's never enough time, so, you know? We'll be looking to our live chat today for commentary, where, head, where your head is at, and, and what you're thinking about, who you're thinking about today. I mean, we have a note from our friends at Urban Timber. Uh, it's personal mm-hmm. for them, too, today as they present the roundtable, and I'll mention it, but, but it's, they're thinking of, of, of those that have gone before them uh, in the family tree, and they're also uh, dedicating today's roundtable to close friends who are still serving. And we remember that, that there are men and women around the world uh, wearing that Canadian flag that are putting their lives at risk and, and obviously leaving families at home. Mm-hmm. We think of the families today. Mm-hmm. Uh, who say goodbye to mom or to dad or to the son or the daughter, the brother, the sister, the aunt, the uncle, in many cases for uh, a tour or for a commitment that, that may extend uh, well beyond six or nine months or yeah. potentially a year, depending on circumstances. And so we think of that. Uh, in just a moment, Dr. Suzette Bramo phillips uh, from the University of Alberta. Of course, these conversations happen because of sponsors that are committed to having conversations that matter and that includes the team at kubi energy providing solar energy solutions to power your life a full service contractor for residential and commercial industrial and agricultural solar power systems they want us to remind you that that canada greener homes grant is still in place this is a a 10-year term interest-free loan interest-free from the federal government up to $40,000 to help you get solar up on your roof. So if cost has been the barrier, number one, you might be surprised at how the cost of solar has dropped over the years. Number two, Kubi can help you do all the paperwork so you can get that done and get solar up on your roof this spring. It starts today by getting your free quote at kubienergy.com. 
www.thebrewery.ca. We spoke just yesterday, Johnny. How cool was it to see uh, the ownership team from the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, right? Great community (laughs) contributors. They live and work where they do their business, and uh, it was wonderful to connect with them in person. That's the Cardinal and Lieber families. Uh, They invite you to enjoy layers of celebration with the DQ cake. If this weekend you're looking to maybe step outside of the kitchen, And let somebody else do the work. Why not check out that signature stack burger collection and wash it all down with one of the special blizzards off that fall menu. You can find them at the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, my home Dairy Queen of Westmount, and Baseline Road out in Sherwood Park. You make sure you let them know that Real Talk sent you. At Friesen Brothers, they've got a big celebration coming up. Of course, it's 16 locations across the province of Alberta. You know that. Well... Charlie, their sourdough starter. Yeah, that's right. They've named the sourdough starter. This is a big deal, John. Mm -hmm. Anybody who knows bread, who knows sourdough, knows that the starter is so important. Well, Charlie turns seven on November 17th. Thanks to Charlie, their craft bakers are able to create a huge variety of bakery products from bread, buns, all kinds of sweet treats. You can learn more about Charlie at Friesen.com slash Charlie. And next week, we're going to telling we're going to be telling you all about Friesen Brothers' birthday celebration, the bread gift basket giveaway. Those details starting on Monday, mm-hmm. right here on Real Talk. We're proud partners at Friesen Brothers. How about that award too? I had no idea. Let's take let's take a second. Well, we, look we, at we, we, let's look at this. We, but you're right. Thank you. We've mentioned this a couple times, uh, and and I'm going to have to. We're going to have to get. We got to get Frank Lovson on the show. So this is the, if you're watching on YouTube, this is the founder of Friesen Brothers. This guy is a legend. Hmm. He's an officer of the Order of Canada. He's in virtually every business hall of fame. And there he is, Frank Lovson, who founded Friesen Brothers, the first one in 1955, John. He's holding up the gold medal. That's the Friesen Brothers South Edmonton store. They call it the Rabbit Hill store. It's a big award. It just won a gold medal from the Canadian Federation of Independent Grocers. That basically means it's recognized this year as the best grocery store in Canada. That is my home grocery store. <laughs> yeah. Five minutes from my house. I told my wife, she's like, we shop at the best grocery store in Canada? The best. I mean, I always thought that, but... So if you see this handsome fella at a Friesen <laughs> Brothers, he's always... Whenever I run into Frank, he's sitting there, he's just he's just sitting in there, he's having his coffee, sitting in the restaurant area. They've got the, the, the fabulous kitchen oh, he area hangs there. Out there. He, he hangs out there. He has a coffee by the fireplace. And he'd love if you went up and said hi and congratulated them on their gold medal. That's, That's a really a really yeah. big deal. Uh, Dr. Suzette Brumo-Phillips is an occupational therapist, a professor in the Faculty of Rehabilitation Medicine at the University of Alberta. Uh, the context of her guesting on this Remembrance Day edition of Real Talk, she's the director of the Heroes in Mind Advocacy and Research Consortium. What's that? It's a provincial hub for research, teaching, and service in support of military members, veterans, public safety personnel, and their families. And the doctor's research interests include resilience, mental health, trauma, and post-traumatic growth. We're so grateful that you've agreed to join us this morning. Before we go any further, am I doing all right with your with your surname? Did I do okay with it? You did fabulously. Thank you, uh, Ryan. Doctor, obviously you're wearing your poppy today. Millions of Canadians are. This is something that you've dedicated a great degree of your life's work to, is, is recognizing and assisting veterans and their families. Where does your head go to? Where are you at? Where's your mind and heart at today on Remembrance Day? I think um, definitely... Thank you for the question. I think definitely with our veterans and their families, those who serve, those who have served, 
um, and the incredible strength that they have, the courage that they have to stand up every day to put on the uniform um, and and serve on behalf of all of Canada um, in the global context here at home in peacekeeping missions, in natural disasters, in our world conflicts that we see right now. So my heart is with all of them, those who are currently serving, those who have served, those who have put on the uniform, those who have transitioned out of the out of the military, and those who have passed before us. Um, those who have given the ultimate sacrifice. Um, and thinking about the the pride that they've had in serving, the challenges they've had in serving, mm. as well as the the struggle that some of them may have today. Um, so I'm with them in that too. Today's not an easy day for for veterans or military members. They remember um and it flashes before them those who they've served with, those um who have made the ultimate sacrifice. So it's a it's a a humbling day, an honoring day, um, a heavy day, and yet a, a day of thoughtful, grateful, um, honoring reflection. So beautifully said, Doctor. You know, I find myself watching uh, the national broadcasts oftentimes at, at the Cenotaph. You, you see at the, you know, the unknown, the, the tomb of the unknown soldier, and, and you see uh, oftentimes veterans in their 90s, um, and, and you see veterans in their 30s. And uh, I described the feeling I got. I, I kind of barely I choked my way through the sentence thinking back to my grandfather playing the last post on his trumpet. Um, but you see the faces of these veterans, um, oftentimes stoic. Oftentimes there's hints of, of, of a twisted type face where they're just holding on. That lip is kind of quivering. And then you see the odd tear drop. And I often find myself wondering who they're thinking about or what they're thinking about. The reality is, though, us civilians, people like me, we can't truly understand. It reiterates to me, I don't know about you, the importance of a day like today. Absolutely. I think that you're very right. Uh, military members, veterans very much hold in, um, often hold in what has what they've been exposed to, what they've experienced on our behalf. Um, their families do as well. Their families are um, the backbone, really, of the military and and um carry a significant weight um and and support and, and encouragement and confidence and and um and pride in those who serve as well so i i too look at the faces i too look at their eyes i see the i see what um what they share with us at least on the outside of what their experiences have been and that that experience is also one of family mm. um for the military they they grow so close together in terms of being a family unit and having to work shoulder to shoulder um, with their very lives for the sake of whatever mission they're on. And so there's a this solid sense of community and family and pride and an identity of having served um, with pride for our country. So I see that and I see the sacrifice um, and what is behind the eyes, which is something that I've had the privilege of um, entering into with mm. a number of mem military members and veterans who have served and which is at the core of some of our research, both and our service as Highmark. We look at a lot of things related to resilience, helping them be operationally ready so that they can serve in whatever their role is and also their families in whatever way they support the military members. So we help them be as resilient so that they can serve. And then if there is an injury that happens, we look for a variety of different innovative interventions that can really support them and, and help them move forward, especially if there's been trauma, um, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, if there's been moral injury, which we're going to be talking about today. 
Um, and then to help them if they're transitioning out of the military into civilian life. So those are the three kind of arms that Highmark does, look at resilience and interventions that are really cutting edge, innovative um, interventions. And then this transition, which we're also really focusing on to try and help them continue to give back into our communities, into our civilian worlds, um, so that they can have really um, meaningful lives and continue to exercise their professionalism, their expertise, their leadership to inform and transform our communities as well. You give off a real optimistic vibe in talking about some pretty heavy stuff. Uh, I, this is our first time speaking. I can't say I know you too well, but you strike me as somebody who's pretty well cut out for the work that you're doing. How did you get connected? And I'm so interested in learning about moral injury. As a matter of fact, I've never heard of that before. We talk about PTSD now, and I think that the majority of us kind of are starting to understand it. But how, how many decades did did uh, servicemen and women return home and, and hear about, you know, shell shock? We didn't really have the words for it, right? Like a concussion used to be getting your bell rung. We didn't really understand it. Now we're endeavoring to better understand and support. But how did you personally get drawn to this line of work? I've been a therapist. Um, I'm a medical rehabilitationist, occupational therapist. I've worked in mental health for 30, 30 plus years and was asked um, when I joined the university um, after after working at the university for a few years to take on directorship of a new initiative called Highmark. I had worked with military members and in the area of trauma for a good number of years as a service provider. Um, and trying to work with systems at an individual level and also at a systems level to try and help our communities when they were struggling with mental health and, and addictions challenges, um, help their families. Um, and military members, public safety personnel, um, and their families were always at the heart of what I did. Um, taking on the, a role as director of, uh, of Highmark, I've had the privilege of expanding that and getting to know military populations all the more and working at an organizational level with the Canadian Armed Forces and Veterans Affairs Canada. Um, but also hearing the, um, the hearts and minds of those who have struggled and looking at innovative ways to help, um, heal. So as a rehabilitationist, I guess my, my heart is one of seeing what people can want to do and help them to reach their maximal potential and those who have gone through an injury of whatever form that might be to help them get back on their feet and continue to move in whatever way potentially they can. Mm. And so at the heart of that is really um, a holistic perspective. We look at body, mind, spirit, soul, um, people neurologically and from a mental health perspective, from their families and, and a systems perspective. And so mental health is very core to all of that. Who a person is, is very seminal, central to that. And if there is a mental health challenge, helping them overcome and see their strength and move from a strengths-based perspective so that they can build on what they have and then be able to move forward. Knowing that for people who have sustained an injury such as post-traumatic stress disorder, if they've been exposed to a, uh, a potentially um, traumatic experience um, in whatever capacity that might be, and many of us have, um, the larger population has, the military members certainly are at um, greater risk because of the experiences that they're, that they're stepping into. Um, so in those kinds of situations, looking at how we can help them build on their strengths and overcome and walk through their trauma, really look at where their trauma is and get to the other side so that they um, can continue on in their lives. So how did I get in, interested? I think being a rehabilitationist, wanting to see people shine, wanting mm. to pe see people reach their potential and maintain their potential and continue to thrive and grow forward regardless of what they've experienced in their life. How, what would be your assessment of how we've done, generally speaking, as a society with our structures within the Canadian forces, with government, 
with with health services, with attitudes of the general public. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, we, we, we see that character represented in film oftentimes, the, the, the soldier that comes home and is almost rebuked by society. I mean, I think I'm thinking more of like in an American con. I don't know why I'm thinking of Lieutenant Dan from Forrest Gump right now. I, mean, I, don't, I don't mean to make light of it, but, but, but that was a character that represented, I mean, the Vietnam vet in, in, in America was looked down upon by Americans. Um, and, and in the Canadian context, I'm sure that there have been men and women. I know that there have been because I've spoken to some of them. Paul Franklin comes mm-hmm. to mind that have returned from Afghanistan or Iraq or whatever. Uh, and they do not have the supports that they that they need. Have, and you must see that firsthand. Do you see that changing? Is that improving? I see it from a from a health services perspective, um, there have been tremendous changes in growth in mindset and in focus and understanding within the Canadian Armed Forces about mental health challenges. Mm-hmm. Certainly, it's not perfect. It continues to evolve. If we think back, though, to Afghanistan or before Afghanistan, when you know the transition from not understanding what PTSD was, shell shock, to us understanding now that PTSD exists, that people need treatment for it, that, that it's important for people to come forward, that there's a total health and wellness strategies within the Canadian Armed Forces and incredible efforts that are underway to help build people's resilience, help them better appreciate what they may be walking into. So things are evolving, definitely not perfect, but there is certainly um, within the Canadian Armed Forces and within Veterans Affairs Canada, a significant um, desire to support members who are serving and then after service when they transition into civilian life. So I've seen personally an evolution over the last number of years. We have different treatments. Um, the, the Canadian Armed Forces are looking at very evidence-based interventions to try and support those who have been injured. Um, those when Afghanistan happened and there, was, there were members that came back, there were a number, um, not everybody, many of them came back um, without injury. Um, some came back with PTSD and moral injury. And we saw actually at that time the more talk about PTSD and more willingness for people to talk about it with less stigma. Now, within the military context, important to understand that individuals, when they if they come forward, there's often concerns about how it might affect their career. So um, to be able to continue to serve or not. So there may or may not be a willingness or an openness to actually disclose while they're in military service, whether what they may be struggling with. So there, there are services that are offered for them then, and there are services that are offered for them after. Some people may be at a time where they're ready to talk about it. Some people may not be. Um, so there's a, the military is trying to, from my estimation of them as a civilian on the outside, um, has seen an evolution and certainly a commitment. The mental health or the mental health services, as well as the health services of the Canadian Armed Forces, which I have the privilege of engaging with on a regular basis, all that I can speak of is their profound commitment to be able to continue to serve, and that this is something that they're trying to break down on openness to talk about it, to break stigma, and to provide some evidence-based treatments. Um, and likewise within the veteran. Veterans Affairs Canada and otherwise, there's a great tremendous willingness and a, and a commitment. There isn't always the resource, um, and it's evolving. So it's a both and um, journey of recognizing PTSD, moral injury, and also the impact that it has on their families. 
I mean, uh, we I, we don't I don't think we need to go. Why? Well, who am I to say? But but we don't. I, I'm not going to try to take this too far down this road because I want to talk about moral injury. I don't even know what that means. I think I can deduce a little bit. But but uh, I mean, you talk about what what the Canadian forces right now. I mean, the, the entire identity of the Canadian forces. I mean, with regards to sexual assault and sexual harassment scandal, with regards to all of the, the I mean, the structures of of misogyny and I mean, all of the inherent sort of issues, the structural organizational issues that they're grappling with as well. I mean, these are big, heavy things, uh, obviously, that require some heavy lifting from people. Um, and I think it's really important that we talk about it. And I'm grateful that we're talking about it today. Mm-hmm. What is moral injury? Can you help us understand this? I've never heard the phrase before. Um, so moral injury is um, a particular kind of a syndrome or a trauma that includes some psychological or existential behavioral interpersonal issues that tend to emerge after someone um, um, is exposed to a potentially morally injurious experience and there's a perceived violation of their deep morals or values um, by themselves or by a trusted other. So it often um, comes with feelings of shame or guilt or betrayal where someone has done something that they feel ashamed of or that they feel guilty for having done something that violates what they believe ought to be, what they think should be, um, or they feel betrayed by what ought to have been but wasn't. They might have witnessed something. So just for example, if someone, if there were uh, abuses of um, in the course of service, uh, where, for example, um, there may be different cultural differences, and people might not um, be comfortable with uh, with what they might have been exposed to, um, while in service, they might have seen things that, um, for example, violations of vulnerable individuals, children, women, civilians, they might have um, been exposed to things like that, that they end up coming back um, home and they might bear um, some shame or guilt for having not done something. And they might not have been able to have done mm. something due to the rules of engagement, but they may still bear some guilt for not having intervened. Or they might have done something where they feel that they ought not to have. If someone has a a set of beliefs, a a very basic one that many in Canada have, I will not kill. And then you have someone who, in because of the the profession of arms, where we ask them on behalf of Canada to serve, um, if they've had to take a life, um, that's a heavy, heavy, heavy burden for someone. Mm. Um, And if they if they have a deep belief that 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 is not something, especially if it was not in the right context, um, then they may bear this weight. Um, or they might have seen uh, something, someone do something that was not quite um, on par with what they believe ought to have happened. Or they might have felt betrayed by an organization, whatever that is. Maybe they felt that the organization didn't have their back mm. um, and betrayed them. Those can leave residual feelings of shame, guilt, or betrayal. And the the other thing that can happen is people can feel fractured within themselves. Um, people can't maybe look in, at themselves in the mirror. They feel um, ashamed or guilty. They can't look at their parent or their grandparent or their children in the eye. They don't know how to be in that relationship after having engaged in whatever that action might have been. So there's a fundamental sense of um, that I am different as a result of it, whatever that it is, um, that I and my relationships are affected by that. And I I don't know where to be or how to be in this relationship. If someone has a belief in a power outside of themselves, 
to higher power or authority, they may also feel that they don't know how to relate um, or that they might need to be uh, reconciled with all of those relationships, with me, with myself, with me, with others, where I might have caused harm um, and I might need to either forgive or be forgiven or at least accept so that I can let go of some of that um, pain. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of things related to moral injury. Everyone has a different experience of it, but it can certainly impact someone's sense of self and relationships, their values, their beliefs, what they feel as a world order, their worldview. Um, and so it can help us it, um, in addressing moral injury. It can help people not only overcome some of the post-traumatic stress disorder that they may have experienced as a result of exposure to traumatic events, but when we deal with moral injury, um, which often can interfere with someone's ability to actually overcome treatment or to to um, have effective treatment if we can address the moral injury on top of that then often we can see some resolution people some individuals who have what we call treatment resistant ptsd may in fact be have received um, interventions for ptsd and not had as much success when we add on a layer of treatment for moral injury often, um, or grief, complex grief, we can get down to the bottom of it. And sometimes we need to use some innovative interventions to get there and help people. And gratefully, we're finding some innovations that can actually help people. I'd be curious to hear a bit about that. If you're if you're just joining us live, uh, streaming the audio on the Mixler audio app, we're talking to Dr. Suzette Bromo Phillips. She's the director of the Heroes in Mind Advocacy and Research Consortium, otherwise known as Highmark, uh, which you can find online. If you're listening to this uh, later in the day, listening to the podcast, you'll find it in the notes, the episode notes, the link, the, the direct link there. Doctor, I, I imagine that a couple people, uh, this may be the first that they're hearing of this uh, with regards to its description. But they recognize the symptoms because they're experiencing them. Uh, you, you talk about innovative measures or innovative approaches uh, to assist veterans and others recovering from moral injury. My understanding is that there's been a kind of with regards to your approach or the team's approach, a combination of like, like psychological and spiritual elements to treatment. Can you take us into that or explain that as best you can? Yeah. Um, so. We, our team has been looking at a holistic approach. Um, psychological means don't always, they're effective. Um, Evidence-based psychological means, we think of exposure-based therapies or um, cognitive-based therapies. When we add on a spiritual layer and we're looking at someone's sense of self, their existential reality, who they see themselves to be, um, a mending of their core sense of self, sometimes we need to look at other interventions that can complement or can be used for many individuals who have a, um, a spiritual, religious, or a philosophical perspective that they also um, adhere to, they follow. Um, complementing the psychological approaches, wrapping it around um, and touching what someone's sense of meaning is, their purpose, their sense of identity, these spiritual core pieces, um, their relational pieces at a very deep, profound level we can get down underneath the bottom of some of the, um, and complement the other um, evidence-based interventions with spiritual, religious, philosophical interventions. When we put those together, it can be quite powerful, very powerful, in fact. Mm. Well, one of those interventions is forgiveness. Forgiveness has been around in many of the spiritual traditions um, for, for millennia. Um, so moral injury has been around for millennia. It's part of human experience. Um, we just call it moral injury now. Um, but it's part of our human human experience. Um, with forgiveness, what it is, as I mentioned, there with moral injury, I can be there can be a fracture of relationship with me, with myself, with me, with others, with me, with whoever I've harmed or been harmed by, 
whoever I witness doing something. Um, so forgiveness offers an avenue or a tool for acceptance, for reevaluation, for thinking through and processing, for reflecting upon, and then being able to um, come to some conclusion with or some uh, resolution with, and then offering forgiveness or receiving forgiveness in a formal or an informal way um, through self-forgiveness, through um, ritual means. Um, there are many different traditions from our Indigenous populations and communities um, to our spiritual religious practices that we see within the multi multicultural fabric of our society, that there are different means of forgiveness that um, can help people to actually accept, accept responsibility, forgive, and move forward. Now, that being said, not everybody is ready at stages. It's a journey. Mm -hmm. It's a process. We also have to be very mindful that in some situations where there may be um, individuals who might not be able to come together again to mend relationships and actually be in physical relationships or, or um connected relationships where there may have been a breach, if there's been an abusive relationship, putting individuals back in those relationships or encouraging them to do something not be indicated. Um, so we have to be careful about how we do that. But if we look at forgiveness as something about me, letting go of coming to acceptance of, and then releasing um, so that I can move on, so that I can be released from the pain, the anger, the shame, the guilt, the bitterness, perhaps, um, that I can then move forward and continue on with my life unabated. I'm so grateful for your perspective this morning. Can, can I ask you in closing um, for a message and take this wherever you will, um, a message for, for family members, for those that, that surround and embrace and, and, and live with and live alongside or potentially colleagues or friends that work alongside uh, people who have served, people who may be experiencing moral injury, people who, who are either uh, you know, living with uh, diagnosed or potentially undiagnosed PTSD. What's your message to the families, to the loved ones on today, Remembrance Day? To you, my heartfelt gratitude, and I think I can only hope that all Canadians um, share this, um, our gratitude and our appreciation for the incredible um, support and strength and backbone that you truly are. You too are, um, give so much, live a life of sacrifice to enable those who serve to be able to do what they do on behalf of all of Canadians. We owe you an incredible debt. And I stand in honor of all of you in admiration for your steadfastness and your ability to um, receive, to let people go and continue on in their operations and to come back and to rejoin you and your family units. I have complete admiration. If there are any of you who family members, children, um, siblings, um, friends, colleagues, individuals who have been affected by trauma in whatever way, I can only encourage you to reach out, um, find some support, get some support. These are things that um, we can wrap support around and want to. Um, Highmark, from our end, we are running some studies right now. We're just about to start an innovative intervention called 3MDR. Um, which is a multimodal virtual reality supported psychotherapy. We're just about to get started and are willing to, within the Edmonton area and Calgary area, um, see if we can offer an intervention 
um, to those who may be struggling. So if you are interested in learning more about that, please reach out. Um, as uh, as Ryan mentioned, our um, Highmark tag will be in, in the notes. You got it. We'll put it in the episode notes. And, and it's also quite easy, uh, Professor, if people just want to, you could just Google Highmark, H-I-M-A-R-C, uh, and we'll tweet that out as well to make it uh, as prominent as possible. Uh, Suzette, uh, Dr. Bromo Phillips, I'm so grateful for your perspective today. We wanted to have a meaningful conversation about mental health and trauma and resources. And, and you've infused this empathy and this optimism, and I'm really grateful for it. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity. Have a great day and a wonderful, thoughtful, reflective remembrance day. Hmm. Beautifully said. Thoughtful, reflective. Uh, can I say there's something in her voice, isn't there? Like the way that she talks, just very trustworthy. Like she, that's, that's a, we just spoke to a remarkable person. I can see how she helps people yeah. <laughs> like with her voice. I would yes. just, I'd be all in. <laughs> because I, I, I can't say that I under, I do not understand what it's like to be a veteran. Uh, I, I think do people not, are kind I, of discussing this in the chat right now. They, you know, the politics, I think, of war always kind of get brought up on Remembrance Day. And it's kind of like, sure. I think when we're younger, especially like I used to question things. But now I, you know, with everything that's happened with my grandfather and it's kind of a day just to remember like not why people went over there or if they, you know, were it, whether it was conscription or yeah, whether they I were mean, peacekeepers or whether they went of their own free will. Today is just remembering like exactly like you said, we don't have any idea if you haven't fought in a war, if you haven't looked someone else in the eye and been on a battlefield, what that's like. So, well, we're, I mean, we're talking about, uh, and I mean, I, I just can't even relate. Uh, you know, especially like these days, we're so we're so sheltered, sheltered and we're so, so protected. And why, yeah. in part, are we so protected? Because we, because of the people who went over, because of people who who yeah. fight and defend our freedoms. And and I don't mean to oversimplify anything. And and part of the beauty, I suppose, if we, we talk about freedom, I mean, the word freedom has been so, and we're not, I don't want to take this into a negative area, we shouldn't. but the, but the, but the, the, the people that, that, that claim that their freedoms have been taken, the, the, the word has been bastardized and co-opted. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, and, 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 and on the flip side, let me also say that it's okay to have strong feelings about war or peace. Of I mean, course. you look at some of the controversy around people that will wear a white poppy or people yeah. that will wear different, you know, statements on behalf of remembrance. It is a free country. Mm-hmm. You can have those opinions. You know, this show today will we'll recognize and, and honor the sacrifice and the commitment of veterans, of Canadians, of men and women who have served. But it's perfectly fine to have your own opinions about combat, about war. Um, and it's okay to have that and make those comments in the forums that, these discussions provide and, and where these discussions happen. I mean, I'm grateful that people are sharing their personal stories, their personal reflections. We're about to get really personal with our Real Talk Roundtable with our three guests. I'm looking forward to talking to Don and Mark and Marie. Marie's joining us from England. Dwayne says, my grandpa was in my grandpa was in World War One in Eastern Europe. I had uncles who served in World War II and the Korean War. He's thinking about them today. You know, Brad says, my grandfather was at Vimy Ridge during the war. His name was Norman Evans. And he made it home to tell the stories. I love when people share the names. I love that. Dr. Bradley Martin's watching right now. He says, my grandfather was a prince of war, uh, a prince, a prisoner of war uh, in Hong Kong uh, under Japanese, uh, under the Japanese for 44 months. Wow. Mark's grandfather, Cecil Campbell, 
fought as a teen with his brother in World War I. Says he took a bullet in the lung. <laughs> he suffered, but he lived a fairly long life with one lung. His brother was not so lucky. That from Mark. He goes on to say, my grandpa's brother wrote to my grandpa in hospital the day he died at Vimy Ridge. Mom has the postcard with my great uncle's blood on it. Wow. Whew. Corey, my grandfather served in World War II, passed away in 2011. I always take time to remember him, especially today, says Corey, lest we forget. Tom's dad fought fascism in Europe, says I'm remembering him today. Says I'm also thinking of Ukrainian soldiers, liberating those from fascists today, thanking them for paying the cost of freedom. You can keep these comments coming. We really appreciate it. This is personal stuff for a lot of you. Shirley says, I'd really like to thank all of the public schools that celebrated our veterans this past week. All seven of my grandkids told me what they did this week. Now, this must be the same Shirley Douglas in the live chat that manifested this Real Talk Roundtable that's about to happen. I think that is. And Shirley, we're sure grateful that you're joining us as we live stream this morning. The Real Talk Roundtable in just a moment. First, I want to remind you that it's the time of year where costs are about to go up. It's just a reality for families, especially in this part of the world where the temperature is about to drop, the days are getting shorter, and it means that we're going to use more electricity and more natural gas. Uh, so it's a great time. As a matter of fact, today, because it takes two minutes uh, to compare your rates, what you're paying right now. I know it's for a lot of us, we go, what am I paying per kilowatt hour? What am I paying per gigajoule? I don't know. I don't even know what the words mean. I barely understand what's going on. My bill arrives and I pay it. Well, you're probably paying too much. If you go to parkpower.ca today, give it two minutes. You may realize that you could be paying a whole lot less if you do business with this friendly local utilities provider. Plus, when you sign up with Park Power, you get to choose one of nine community partners to support at no extra charge. That's just one of the many benefits of choosing a privately owned and operated utility company. I am a proud partner of Park Power. I've directed my donations to the Saffron Center, which provides support for survivors of sexual assault. But there are nine different options you can choose from. You can support the arts. You can support other community organizations. It's just one of the reasons why we're so proud to power with Park Power. Same deal goes with our friends at Eden Landscaping. Mike and his team know that you may not be thinking about your front yard or your backyard, a retaining wall or a water feature or an outdoor forno oven right now with two feet of snow on the ground. But if you want that to be in place by next summer, you want to get the ball rolling now, you can contact Mike and his team, check out their services, their portfolio, Ask them some of the entry questions to get the ball rolling on bringing your outdoor space to life with Eden Landscaping, a custom builder with more than 20 years of on-the-ground experience in Edmonton and area. Hey, speaking of proud partners, how about the team at Apex Automation? They're providing intuitive, fully autonomous solutions to industry. They're giving people back their time. That is the entire premise. That is the bedrock upon which this rapidly growing company is built. They've opened head offices, not just in Edmonton, but they're opening field offices in British Columbia, across Canada, down into the southern United States to be closer to their clients, to cut down, to eliminate some of the barriers that stand in the way of efficient project management. 
If you're a professional engineer looking for a new opportunity where you will be valued and you're going to get some of your time back, go to apexautomation.ca today. Click on the careers link or reach out to them. Pass along your CV. Your best move when it comes to your career could be a move to Apex Automation. And of course, every Friday, our Real Talk Roundtable is presented by our friends at Urban Timber. Now, you know that they're the ones that built this beautiful custom table for us in the Real Talk studio. It's a white oak masterpiece with actual working gears underneath. This table raises and lowers. That's what we wanted. Your vision may be different. They can realize your vision today at urbantimber.ca. But don't forget, today... They want to let you know that they're more than proud as they extend their gratitude. Uh, They're offering a military discount to all past or present veterans and personnel with the Canadian Armed Forces. They appreciate your service and dedication to keeping us all safe and free. Uh, I heard from Darren and Leanne, the owners of this family-owned business. Darren says, my grandfather was a World War II vet and I have very close friends still serving. This is an important roundtable conversation for them and for us. Our gratitude to our friends at Urban Timber. Well, it was exactly a year ago today that this conversation we're about to have was manifested. A good friend of mine, Don Levers, the author of Our Father's Footsteps, was here. We were having a conversation with, with, with Don and, and with Ted Barris, another war historian. And as we talked about D-Day and as we talked about the landing on the beach, an audience member by the name of Shirley, who's joining us again today, reached out and she said, I'm pretty sure I recognize one of the soldiers in the photo on the cover of the book. We'll show you that cover. We'll show you the photo. I'm so excited. And you don't hear a lot of people using the word excited on Remembrance Day, but this is a story of connection. Uh, This is a reminder of the personal, the very personal element of service in combat. Don, of course, the author of Our Father's Footsteps, is joined today by Mark Douglas. Now, Mark is the son of one of the men in that famed photo of the Royal Winnipeg Rifles. It was Mark's daughter-in-law that contacted Real Talk when we were talking about the book on the D-Day anniversary and and Shirley reached out and then they started exchanging information and then they met Don at a book signing, John at Friesen Brothers, if you could believe it, and here we are today. So Mark's joining our Real Talk roundtable, as is Marie Brown. Now Marie is joining us from England. She's joining us from Hull, England. And Marie and Dawn, the author of the book, actually met on the Normandy beaches in June of 2019. And they've since become good friends since a short introduction near Sword Beach back in 2019. This is wild. And I'm so grateful that the three of them are joining us today on the roundtable. Thank you three for being here with us. Don, uh, we're still working on it. John, that's no problem. We're working on getting the Zoom together. Don joining us here live. Uh, this really is a remarkable development, Don. Can, can you tell us about meeting uh, Mark and, and, and what that must have been like? Did, did you ever imagine that when you published this book that, that, that this was going to happen with that photo that you used on the cover? Absolutely not. It was... Uh 
I've been introduced to one of the other gentlemen in the picture uh, after another interview that I did with Global. And then when you and I spoke, it was Shirley that contacted the show. And Shirley is actually Mark's husband. So it uh, so Morley Douglas the is her father-in-law that is in the picture. So I gave you a little misinformation when I sent you my notes. Sorry about that. That's okay, Don. We're just uh, we're we're just doing to, to be honest with you. Full disclosure: we're doing a little troubleshooting behind the scenes to get our other two panelists to join us here, and and uh, and Johnny's working on that. It, it might be you and I chatting for just a little bit, and and that's totally okay. Um, okay. For those that aren't familiar with the story of our father's footsteps, this is the story of some of the people. I mean, it started with it, it's about you telling the story of your dad and the people that your dad served with, right? Can, can you, for those that aren't familiar with the book, can can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, I was heading to Normandy in 2019 and uh, for a pilgrimage with groups from Winnipeg. And so when we went over there, I before we went, I met with Gord Stanky and he said, it'll be great to walk in your dad's footsteps. And that started the process for me, looking back on his memoirs and his journals and finding more about his story and realizing that there was a lot more stories to tell. So I began the journey of talking to people I was going to, on the trip with. A lady from Edmonton, Pat Nearingberg, gave me a hundred letters that her dad had uh, sent home after arriving in England in 1942. And uh, so that started the whole process. And then everywhere I went in Normandy, I was telling people I met, I'm working on this project. Uh, do you have any stories? Well, I met Marie. We talked for a few minutes uh, on the parking lot of Sword Beach. And then she reached out to me when we got home and we become wonderful friends and the kind of person I'd like to go and have a cup of tea with some afternoon. And uh, so we've shared the, her dad's story and the stories are of her uh, first husband's uncles are also in there, uh, about three men who met up on Dunkirk Beach as they were um, getting off the beaches as they made their way back home. Uh, after they were being captured, there were so many people being captured there at the time, but they uh, evacuated over 300,000 men, and they were three of those. Don, how did your understanding of the Second World War, or how did your understanding of D-Day, or how did your, you know, the, the way that Remembrance Day lands with you or impacts you, how did that change through the process of writing your book? You asked me what remembrance meant to me last year. I checked out our, our talk from last year and see where exactly what I talked about. <clears throat> and I kind of, I don't think I answered the question properly. But I think now what it really means to me is going to a place like Beni Sumer in Normandy, a uh, cemetery with over 2,000 um, men in it, majority of them Canadians from around the Normandy campaign, and then finding the headstones of some of the men that my dad mentions in his in his journals and i think of those men and the <clears throat> excuse me the the hundreds of men who died on normandy beach uh, the normandy beaches that day that never had the opportunity to become fathers and i often wonder what the children of these men could have offered the world if they had have been if those men had have survived and been able to come home and have families hmm 
Um, your your uh, meeting of Marie on on the beach uh, near Sword Beach uh, in in 2019. Uh, can you tell us about why you were over there? Can you tell us about how that meeting came about and and tell us about what you learned about about her father, Harry Hilgerd? Well, it was <clears throat> like you say. We were over there to follow the journey of the Royal Winnipeg Rifles is when they were there. And in the process, telling the people I was with and then telling Marie uh, a little bit in the parking lot, she was with her family and her husband. Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry about that. Okay. Uh, and so I told her a little bit about my dad's story and uh, meeting her and just this moment on the beach, meeting this lovely family. And then her telling me a little bit about her dad and saying, you know, well, I said, Here, here's a card, send me a note and, and we can talk about it. And and she did. And, and she sent me this, this incredible letter when we got back telling how she had, she had thought about the turning points in her dad's life, because that's basically what the stories are. They're what if moments of each of the men in the book. So she shared those with me. Uh, we're we're uh, we're working on uh, furiously behind the scenes to try to get our other two panelists in here. We can hear them, um, and uh, and I'm and I'm hoping to hear the story from the other side. When you are, uh, you know, you're speaking with people, and this is something that you've been very passionate about. When you talk about Remembrance Day, um, there are many themes. I mean, we just had a very powerful conversation with with Doctor uh, Suzette Bromo Phillips, who joined us and talked about moral injury and talked about PTSD and talked about the work that they're doing now with veterans, young and old. Uh, what's something that you hope that the average Canadian is reflecting on today, on November 11th? Well, before I answer that question, um, the moral injury. My friend who you've interviewed, uh, James Ballard, Bob Ballard, wrote a book called Poison Jungle. He's in the process of soon releasing another one, uh, Mekong Delta Blues. And in there, he's working on an author's note that talks about the, the triad of uh, PTSD, moral injury, and, um, and, and that kind of thing. And the moral injury, you, you hit it on the head, and, and he's talking about that and just doing an author's note because sometimes people don't get it. And I think Marie and I, and the other men in our, in our, in my book, we were all very fortunate as family members that we didn't experience our parents having that um, PTSD. Uh, there are many who came back that were uh, very troubled. The four, the four men in the book, uh, their, their family seemed to grow up without the knowledge of, of really what happened and, and not that they hid it, but they didn't wake up in the middle of the night screaming, as we've heard many times, or, mm. or drinking to excess. So we were very, very fortunate as, as family members to have parents and, and both mothers and fathers that uh, were understanding and that they didn't suffer from those moments. Uh, we're so grateful that, that Marie is joining us this morning. Marie Brown uh, from Hull. England. Uh, Marie was born in November of 1944, didn't even meet her dad until four years later when he when he finally returned home after spending uh, a considerable amount of time uh, in England, helping put countries essentially together after the war. Marie's uh, father uh, was served on the beaches. Harry Hildyard did uh, for many months following the invasion, unloading ships as they arrived off Sword Beach 
his uh, area was shelling on July 6th, the month after D-Day, and the explosion injured 15 of his mates. Uh, we're so grateful, Marie, that you're able to join us this morning. Welcome to Real Talk uh, from halfway Hello. around the world in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. <laughs> what are you reflecting on today on this November 11th? Uh, I've given some thought to what I'm thinking about today. Uh, tomorrow is my birthday. And so remembrance has always been uh, interactive with that in a way, because everyone thinks I was born on Armistice Day, as they call it over here. Mm. So there's a run up to it, which will obviously culminate at the Cenotaph on Sunday. But we lost a lot of people in the First World War, as well as our parents serving in the Second World War. So there's a lot to think about. Would it you was wonderful meeting Don and giving me time to think about my father in a completely different way. Would you tell us about your dad? You didn't. You didn't meet him until you were four years old, and that was, was is that correct? One and a half, Ryan. Oh, you're pardon me. Pardon yeah. me. Oh, I'm doing. I'm very bad at math. Forty six <laughs> minus forty four is not four. You're right. You were one and a half. So you do. You don't. You don't maybe necessarily have a memory of life before meeting your father, or do you? Can you remember those early years and what it would have been like? No, not at all. Other than Hull was an industrial city, and it was the third largest port in England at that time. So it was an easy target for the bombers to come over and it was very badly bombed during the war. So I grew up in an environment with lots of gaps that we thought were great to play in, but really there were people's homes that had been bombed. So when dad and my uncles came home, we were already established in a, a war-torn city, shall we say. Mm. How did that influence your perspective? I mean, as, as you became a teen, a young woman, and then you grew into adulthood, did that, did that sh- it must have shaped your impression in, in a certain sense of, of the cost of war. Uh, it, it essentially was staring you in the face, wasn't it? We played in what we call bombed buildings, bombed churches. We held concerts uh, standing in the pulpit without realizing what we were actually doing. We were having rations until 1950. So things were, but that was the world we were born into. So how do we feel about now? We have a lot of respect for uh, the values of life in a different way completely because of living through that time. We had a wonderful childhood. And Don says about our parents, we were very lucky, (laughs) me, (laughs) we were very lucky that our fathers didn't come home as traumatized as they should have done. Hmm. Was that something that was ever discussed? I have a regret that I didn't ask enough as most people. Uh, I married very early and I had children very early. And my youngest son was four months old, just at the point where I would begin to settle to raising children and being able to start asking questions. And dad died suddenly when my Richard was four months old. So I didn't get to ask. However, I became the family historian and learned so much, so much about these people. And Don was a blessing because I got to know 
my dad, as he would have been a soldier, not as a dad, but as he was then. Hmm. I I often fear that. No, I don't fear. I know that that I didn't ask enough questions of my grandparents. I would give any. I would give anything for for another dinner or for another evening yes. as a grown yes. man now with, mm. with so many questions to ask. I, I guess, Don, in part, to state the obvious, that that's probably an element of what fuels you and, and your work with recording this history and with telling these stories and with meeting people like Marie and connecting with Mark and, and going back and trying to better understand you know, the people in these photos. As we welcome Mark to the show, Mark, we're thrilled to have you here. Uh, thanks for making time for us on this Remembrance Day. Uh, your dad, do I understand this correctly? Your dad, Morley Douglas, is one of the men featured in the photo on the cover of Our Father's Footsteps. Can you tell us about this? Well, I, I guess I can tell you what, what I know. Sometime, some time ago, I think it was, uh, I mean, it's got a long, long history. It was in, a, I remember I was in grade four or something like that in Saskatoon. It was right around the centennial year and there was a, a book published and I knew my dad was in the Royal Winnipeg Rifles and and there was a it was a kind of a Canadian a montage of Canadian history and uh, I, I guess we saw the the archives photo there and and uh, we're pretty sure that it was it was dad and that that was just kind of led to more stories about about that particular thing because he knew he was in the Royal Winnipeg Rifles, and that's what it said. The issue was always, uh, or for for him, was the, um, um, I guess the where it, the the caption said that it would that it took place on uh, June six and or June, yeah, forty four and all all of that. Uh, the issue was that. Uh, he thought the seas were a little bit calm and there's uh, no way that uh, he or anyone else would have had a soft cap on during the the landing or during that particular mission. And that uh, uh, people had their heads up looking like they were tourists on a vacation as opposed to uh, the the d-day um experience so is the and, suggestion that the photo may actually be from from what like a training exercise days before or something like that yeah i think in the previous month or two maybe uh don can speak to uh the specifics of that but that's that's what my that's what my uh dad had suggested that the photo was was from an earlier time uh in preparation for uh, the invasion. Don, do you have any insight into this? Have you been able to fact check this or do any digging on the source of that photo? Absolutely. We, we've been, uh, ever since I saw the photo and it's been used on a couple of other books over the years. And when I looked at the, when I was using that photo and blowing it up and looking at it for the first time, I noticed exactly what Mark was saying. The seas are so calm. I mean, that morning of June 6th, the seas were six foot swells. Uh, and so you can see that the seas are calm in that picture. 
the men with their heads above the gunnels like a bunch of gophers sitting in a, in a gopher hole. And so I, this doesn't look right. I thought perhaps it might be a second or third wave that was coming into the beach later because the beat, the, the water did calm down later in the afternoon. Well, after my interview with Global, another one of the soldiers, and I don't know if you've got the picture there that circles the man in the camel helmet, <clears throat> he reached out to me. He's the nephew of one of the men in the picture, and his name was Alan Williams. He was with um, B Company. I looked up his, his records and I found out he was with B Company, and his nephew told me that he was wounded 10 minutes after arriving on the beach. Jeez. Well, if that had been from D-Day morning, there's no way those guys' heads were, were sticking above the gunnels there. And if he was with B Company, uh, first wave, they landed with 164 men on the beach and um, with an oversized extra platoon in the company. And they left the beach that morning with uh, the captain, 28 other ranks and four stretcher bearers. So he also didn't believe that this picture was from there. So I've now been working with some other people to confirm that this picture, but <clears throat> Library and Archives Canada, as Mark mentioned, lists it as uh, June 6th, 1944. Uh, hard to argue with them unless we get these other facts. So. Don, can I just say how grateful I am that there's people like you that are doing the work on this? That, that is so valuable to better understand the history, to better understand the, the sacrifice and the significance. And I'm just so grateful that you're doing this. Uh, Mark, your father, Morley, if I understand this correctly, who, who fought, who served with the Royal Winnipeg Rifles, is this correct? He was he was wounded on July 4th, 1944, and then wounded a second time in Holland? Yeah, he would, I, his story, I think, uh, very much mimics one of the uh, soldiers in, in Don's uh, book there. He was he was wounded at, in the battle for uh, Carpe, is it? The, the, Con, the Con Airport. Uh, and uh, was taken out of service for six weeks. He was a, he was a signaler, so he carried a radio on his back. He, he uh, always claimed the radio saved his, his life because it took the brunt of the uh, shrapnel um, from a, a bomb of some kind. Uh, on that first uh, um, injury, and he took he was taken out of action for five or six weeks and returned later in the fall um, as they were uh, leaving France and heading towards Belgium um, and continued on until uh, February 21st uh, when he was wounded again. Uh, somewhere near the, with some other information that Don had provided me, I'd been able to kind of figure out that it was probably uh, uh, near the Belgian-German border. Uh, he he was wounded and, and suffered uh, fairly significant injuries to his legs uh, at that time. Did that impact him the rest of his life? Yes, it did. He lost uh, nerve damage in, mm. in, in one leg that uh, gave him some motor control impairments with his, with his one foot. Did your dad talk much about the war or did you ask him much well, about the war? Well, I'll always ask, but again, it's 
to me it was i mean he he would always talk about the more romantic uh memories things like when he'd get to go on leave and go to dance go to a dance in edinburgh or something like that as opposed to the the day-to-day drudgery of of being in a war uh, he talked about uh i recall one instance where he talked about you know where they were staying in a house uh somewhere in france and and being offered wine by the the uh native people and and uh you know not not much about the 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 paint the toils of war i guess yeah yeah marie you mentioned that and you and i had that exchange talking about how we have so many questions that were that were left unanswered did you get a sense as as a young girl or or as as a teen uh, as a young woman, that those questions would have been welcome or were welcome. What what was, if I can describe it as the culture, maybe not just even in your household, but generally speaking about looking back on that time? My mother's brother, my, my uncle Joe, was fighting in Burma. And he he was never happy to talk about it. And when it came to the Remembrance Weekend, he would say, why would anyone want to remember that? Mm. Um, it was difficult. There were all of the people I knew, my uncles, they all served in the war in different theatres of war. Uh, my father-in-law was at Dunkirk with his two brothers and one was captured. He was shot in the neck, but his life was saved by the German surgeons. Lovely, lovely man. But the war was was different here. And I think people were just wanting to get back to some kind of normality. However, I would like to add this. My husband, Alan, was born before the war, and he remembers it very well. Really? Yes, indeed. How old would he have been? Was it just a young boy? He was five when the war started, and he was 10 when it ended. So he's got a very good memory. He remembers the war starting. He was his house was bombed twice. They were bombed out of the house twice and had to be evacuated. He went to a myriad of different schools. The rationing he remembers, and and if I may just add one point, his father was serving um, in on Bull Fort, which is in the River Humber, and at night they had to watch the German bombers flying down the Humber to bomb Hull, their homes. And they just could not do a thing about it. Just watch it going up in flames. But Alan tells me an awful lot about, well, from a child's aspect, obviously, but about the war, which is very interesting. I, uh, I'm so grateful that the three of you have agreed to join us and talk about your family's personal stories. Again, this is just a remarkable connection of, 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 of people that came together as a result of an interview here on Real Talk. I'd like to wrap our conversation today uh, by simply asking the three of you, uh, and we often do this in our roundtable, to give us an assignment, give us something to focus on or to think about today or in the days following, specifically about service, specifically about soldiers, the men and women that serve, uh, whether that was uh, in 1944, whether that was in 1919, whether that's in 2023, uh, coming up w- with tours that are currently or service that is currently underway. Um, 
Marie, perhaps we'll start with you. I would like to say two things, really. Um, one, it only occurred to me in thinking about coming onto this program. It was 20 years since the First World War when our fathers were losing their, my own father lost two uh, uncles. When they were called up to go and serve, they must have been terrified thinking of what it had been like all those years earlier. They must have been absolutely terrified thinking it would be the same. And yet they dug their heels in, they stoically went on and they did what they needed to do. And the, the final point I would like to make is the thrust of Don's book to me is that we're all different. I'm from Hull, you're all from Canada. They all came together, these different, very, very ordinary men they all came together on that one day in that one area and they did what they needed to do. And I am so proud of them all. But thank you to Don for bringing it to the fore. Mm, I love that, Marie. Mark, what's your assignment for the audience? I, well, I, I think it, a lot of it depends on perspective and time. I know my my thoughts about uh, this have changed over time and I I was reading some things that my uh, dad had written and, and he he was talking about why he served. Uh, and a lot of it had to do with uh, familial pressure. His father, uh, my grandfather, always figured he'd missed out uh, on World War I. Ah. Uh, my great-grandfather had gone and hauled him out and, and got him not to serve <laughs> Uh, my dad said three times, uh, and eventually he he never did serve. But my grandfather always thought he missed out because he didn't serve. Uh, so my father, growing up in uh, southern Manitoba, uh, you know that was well, it was something to do. I guess I I, I really don't know. But he had a lot of a lot of pressure from his father. To serve, that was uh, what happened. But in turn, I I didn't have that same uh, uh, pressure by my father. I, I don't think he he thought it was uh, a very dangerous place to be. And fortunately for his actions and and people like him, I didn't have to make that sacrifice personally. So I always feel very lucky that uh, very fortunate that I didn't have to make those choices personally. That's such a great perspective. I appreciate that. Don, last word to you, my friend. Well, I agree with what Mark just said and the fact that we have been so lucky. I mean, we have had, unfortunately, many Canadians go serving in, in various places, Bosnia, Iraq, or, um, Afghanistan, that have, have been the volunteer Canadian army that we have, and they've gone to these places, and, and, and uh, many of them have sacrificed their lives. One of the reasons for writing the book and, and is to encourage the families to find out more about their military history. And as Gord said to me the very first time we met, there's got to be more stories in the trunk in the attic or a chest in the basement. And I also after being in France and seeing the young people, and, and Marie can attest to this, and, and Mark, you've been there, but the young people that come out, 
that still appreciate what the Canadians and British and, and all of us did uh, for their countries uh, in, in the Second World War is still appreciated today. And I, I would love the young people that, uh, you know, to learn about the sacrifices their now their great grandparents made in the fact to allow them to even be here today. And that's really important to me. I had a young lady at, a, at an event last night and I was saying, if you read the book and you start to find out about your great grandfather, then I'll have done my job. And that's, that's what I'm really hoping that people will do is it's not for the book's sake. It's just that there's just so much out there and that we should really, really, really be appreciating that. Mm, well and said. on in Edmonton here, the no stone left unturned is so important. And the young people that are coming out to that is, is incredible. And I think we have to continue that. Yeah. And in other uh, jurisdictions across the country, it's been remarkable to see that that event spread in, in popularity and significance and the magnitude of its impact as well uh, with young people who are the ones placing those poppies on those grave markers and what an opportunity to better understand that history. What I like about the interaction of actually physically, you know, children placing the poppies on the gravestones is they're reading the names. And I was saying it earlier on the show today. I so appreciate when real talkers, when audience members have been sharing the names of their family members that served and it allows us to, to recognize them and to appreciate their sacrifice and their service. Uh, Real Talkers, you've been hearing from Don Levers. You can learn more about his book, Our Father's Footsteps, and his other work by visiting donleversbooks.com. And, of course, we've been showing his, his uh, email address as well, ourfathersfootsteps at gmail.com. If, if you'd like to talk to Don or reach out, if you have some insight here into the work that he's doing on the research side, hey, Don, I throw it out now because you never know what might happen. you got people like Mark and Shirley Douglas who are real talkers. And, and here's Mark on our roundtable as well, talking about his dad, Morley Douglas, and, and of course, Marie uh, Marie Brown, kind enough to join us all the way from Hull, England, talking about her father, Harry Hildyard. Uh, to the three of you, thank you so much for this. It means a lot. Thanks for putting this together, Ryan. And I must say, this is the first time I've got to see and speak directly to Marie <laughs> since June of 2019, and it has been wonderful. Nice to it's see lovely. you, Marie. Thank you. It was lovely to see you. Yeah, Thank you. as a reminder, those those two uh, befriended one another back in 2019 uh, over on the beaches of Normandy. That's incredible. And here they are in the Real Talk Roundtable, yeah. uh, presented by our friends at Urban Timber. John, this is a special moment of appreciation and recognition for you. You're, <laughs> no. You're, no, I know we're all serious. We're talking about Remembrance Day, but I want to say the technical wizardry and the problem solving <laughs> that you uh, undertook needs to be recognized to make that roundtable happen. I don't. Uh, you'll tell me after the show what you were dealing with. All I could see was we've got one, two, three, four, uh, five, six monitors going on there. And you were, yeah, of course, you're going to downplay it. But I'm really grateful for what you brought to the table to make that roundtable happen. Um, and again, of course, presented by our friends at Urban Timber. Now, it is Friday. It's Remembrance Day, but it is Friday. And that means that in a second, uh, our Friday tradition, that is trash talk, is, is going to allow a couple of real talkers to, to get a couple of things off their chest. Uh, we've got uh, emails from Laura and Kelly. Uh, that's coming up. But first, I wanted to let you know that uh, Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge, you know, we talk a lot about the new vehicles, their new inventory, you know, the 
Ram 1500s and the Grand Cherokees and and all of the other the the Ram and the and the Chrysler the the Mopar the Jeep lineup that everybody's looking for and they've got their best selection on that across Alberta. But what about their pre-owned specials? You can shop these online, check out the inventory. Of course, you can just go see them in person as well. Maybe we don't talk enough about this. Like you're looking for a vehicle that's going to come with warranty. It's already got all the inspection done by the mechanics. You can trust it, uh, but you only have. 13 or 14 or 15 grand to spend why not check out a 2015 fiat 500 sport for 15.988 what about a used a pre-owned 2014 camaro uh, for under 20 grand or a kia rio for under 22 what about these volkswagen golf gti i was ripping around with my buddy kyle last night in his golf gti that's a nice little unit Mm. those things fly those legendary volkswagens 22988 for a 2015 golf gti autobahn edition you can find a great pre-owned inventory at sherwood and st albert dodge you can link to them under the sponsors tab on our website Every Friday, we open up our email inbox. Uh, This is a a tradition that was established in the very first week of Real Talk. And since that very first week, it's been presented by our friends at Local Environmental Services. We call it Trash Talk. All right, this one's a healthcare edition of Trash Talk. This is just the way that it worked out. Laura writes into the show. She says, Ryan, it is with sadness and honestly anger that I write to you today. I'm a retired nurse, 40 years of employment behind me. I absolutely loved my career, which allowed me to specialize in a number of areas of care. I've also been waiting months for a hip replacement. And today I want to address the myth and the blind trust that people have with regards to the management of our healthcare system. Let me be honest where I stand politically. I've always been a little left of center, but that doesn't really matter when you're talking about healthcare. It shouldn't be politicized. We've got a management team that was hired to make decisions in our best interest, and this has not been happening. She says, over the past two years, our healthcare system has been shut down, staff reorganized, programs stopped. We were on hold, right? Because of COVID. And this caused more suffering, it seems, than COVID ever did for a lot of the people involved. You know, moving staff from A to B may work occasionally, but it's like mixing apples and oranges when you're talking about areas of specialty. Once you specialize in nursing, it's inefficient and ineffective to be pulled and plopped into another area and be expected to perform. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of staff. Programs could still have run. There was no need to shut things down like they did. Now, I can't speak to staff sick time regarding this matter, but I just say, as we face waiting times for surgery and diagnosis, etc., people are suffering because of poor management. And there are problems that you need to hear about and some that you do hear about in the news, and it's always politicized. Why are we not demanding that management speak to this? Give us the reasons, and if you foresee problems, then let's find out who needs to be accountable. That's why they have the expertise at a good dollar, I might add. Healthcare's become this bottomless pit where nothing changes, and it's always the government's fault. Well, I'm sick of it. Healthcare's run according to budget. Why can't we change that to the number of procedures done and look at increasing that? Let's look at service and how it's delivered. Let's demand more from people at the top. We need a shakeup. We need to look after me, my loved ones, people I don't even know in reasonable time and reasonable fashion. And if I want to pay for something like a hip replacement, why not? It opens up a space in public care. You're talking my language, Laura. She says it's a win-win solution. Australia has this system and it works great. Ryan, 
Thanks for taking the time to hear me out. I'm hoping that the people listening to Trash Talk will now question the people who have been hired to deliver healthcare services. They've got a huge budget to do so. Let's demand more from them or show them the door. That from Laura. And this one from Kelly, who says this mandate letter that everybody's talking about with regards to the Alberta government, how how is this going to help Minister Shandro help the province with the very real challenges that we're facing as citizens? Rising costs, collapsing healthcare under the weight of a preventable, transmissible virus that the government continues to deny the gravity of. How does allocating funds into the priorities in this mandate letter make any sense to anybody? The actual real problems people face are lack of access to public defenders, lack of access to courts to get justice, lack of supports for people to avoid getting involved in the justice system, lack of money for existing services to improve, instead, more chasing ideological windmills. This Sovereignty Act that the Premier's talking about is going to kill investment, period. It's embarrassing the depth to which our conservative politicians have gone dumbing down and pretending they don't understand how the separation of powers works in this country. Frankly, says Kelly, it's insulting. This Alberta police force is going to cost billions in lost federal funding. The cost of setting up training, administration of a new force is a ridiculous waste of money. We need mental health training. We need support for police being called out to mental health and addiction calls. Where's the fiscal conservatism in turning down 300 mil a year from the feds for policing? Protecting unvaccinated persons as a protected human rights? That demonstrates a lack of understanding of the intent of human rights protections and the duty of care that government and business has to protect the health of the people in their charge. I'm a business owner, says Kelly. I have a legal duty to minimize risk to my staff's health while performing their work. WCB and insurance require this duty of care. As a decent human being, it's imperative. Vaccines save lives. They're the number one reason after basic sanitation that human life expectancy rose above the age of 40. MRNA vaccine tech is already revolutionizing how researchers are tackling other diseases. The Alberta government's required vaccination for a multitude of professions in your employee, including nurses, doctors, EMS, correction staff, for decades. Why is our government embracing misinformation toward this particular vaccine instead of providing rational leadership? And denying the fact that plastics are toxic? We've not talked enough about this, by the way. Are you people serious, asks Kelly? We need serious people to solve serious problems. Plastics are toxic. You know it. I know it. We all know it. We need them. It's a potential value add for the Alberta economy, but we need to stop throwing it out and clogging our waterways and oceans. We need to eliminate single-use plastics and concentrate on durable and high-tech uses. We need to use, get this, facts and science to make our decisions. That's from Kelly. Facts and science to make decisions? What will they think of next? Coming up on next week's Real Talk, we're going to be getting back to issues that matter. A deeper dive into the midterm election results down in the United States. Plus, we're going to be checking in with Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, a climate scientist who's going to be joining us live from COP27 in Egypt. You'll get all the details on what's coming up on Real Talk when you sign up for our Real Talk Sunday message email. You do that by going to our homepage, ryanjesperson.com, and scroll down to the bottom. Make it a great weekend, friends. And today, on Remembrance Day, lest we forget, we'll see you soon. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, Executive Producer Josh Dunford, Technical Producer John Hicks, General Manager Katie Cook-Chivers, 
Account Coordinator, Lawrence Durlego. Human Resources, Lena Sheffer. Website Design, Mike Johnston. VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.